Welcome back to some degree. Um, it's been so long since we were in the building that this was our last title slide. It looked like this outside. And now we're back to this. So um, Tegan made a welcome back banner. It's very cute. And uh, thank you to Dale and Bill, Andrew and Sharon. Um, Andrew and Sharon provided the masks. And Dale and Bill were our crowd control, which obviously we needed real bad. Um, yeah, next week we'll have more people if we do this, but we can re-examine and, and we can decide, do we want to keep doing this for a little while or do we want to go back to online church? And that's, that's a conversation we can have after we see what this is like. Why don't we start with prayer, though? God, we're thankful to be together and we're thankful that you're here with us. You were with us when we were online church. You were with us when we were just doing our own thing on Sunday mornings, you're always with us, and you're with us in the midst of this pandemic. We trust you, we love you, we are thankful, Father, that on this Father's Day, you are the dad who's taking care of us. Uh, we praise you, uh, Jesus, uh, in the name of the Father, amen. Um, so, I had no idea where we were in our Read Through Scripture series, like that was three and a half months ago. I had to look it up, and it turns out we're in Romans 12, which is uh, one of my favorite chapters. Living Sacrifices. My very first year of Bible college, our theme verse was Romans 12, 1 and 2, and uh, that kind of set the stage for my whole biblical higher education process, and it's a good one. So this is Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So, especially to my girls, what that means is we are like the body of Jesus, and each body has different parts, and different parts have different functions. And I think it's really cool, the, the list of gifts that he gives includes things like encouragement and leadership, things we don't necessarily think of as gifts. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. That's your initial, Zoe. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, just a beautiful and powerful passage. Very practical, too. Um, so that's Romans 12. Um, I thought in lieu of um, singing more songs that we could do something more liturgical, which means just a, a reading together as we lead into communion. So this is John 1. Uh, the yellow parts are the parts that we're going to read together, and I'll read the white parts. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. I thought that connected a lot of things that are happening today that are special. It connects Father's Day. The Son is in the Father. We are children in the family of God, thanks to Jesus. And it connects, today feels like a bit of a family reunion, um, like we've been talking on the phone for a few months and now we get to be together a little bit so it feels a little bit like a family reunion like God's children coming together to celebrate to celebrate the father so for communion that was my thought just being brought back together um, to, to celebrate what the father has done for us as his kids grace and truth comes through him and he shares that grace and that truth with all his children so kids why don't we uh, did everybody bring a communion thing all right, brothers and sisters, fellow children, uh, let's take his body, remembering that it was beaten and broken for us. Remembering also that we are the body. And let's take our drink, the blood that cleanses us, and let's pray again. Father, you are good, and we know that through sending your son, we can all now become sons and daughters of you through his body and his blood. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. We thank you for the grace and the truth of your whole life and your death and your resurrection. You are glorious and beautiful and good, and through you, we can become family. So I thank you for this family. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, announcements. Zoe? Father's Day. Yes, today's Father's Day. Um, we got several dads here. A salute to you, dads. And you are all excellent fathers, and many of you have been like father figures to me, myself, in my life. So I am very proud to be amongst you, and uh, thank you for the hard service you do of, of loving your families. It's the, the greatest calling God has given you. Um, we didn't get to do a whole lot for Mother's Day either, so why don't we give another round of applause for our mothers. 
Love you mothers too. And you deserve all the honor um, that you get and more. Any other celebrations? Back to church. And it looks different, and that's okay. Um, thank you to Dale for his fancy pool noodle idea. It is amazing. But yeah, thank you to Dale and Trish for helping uh, with setup, and appreciate that. Oh, by the way, I'm recording all of this um, just for people who couldn't be here today, including the opening stuff, but I'm not going to have prayer requests and announcements in it. Just... I'm not comfortable with putting prayer requests on the internet if if people aren't, you know, there's some privacy stuff there. Um, everything else will be on, just so you know. I should have probably let you know before you started singing. <laughs> but uh, so obviously we're not out of the woods completely when it comes to coronavirus stuff. Um, we're not out of the woods, but the branches are beginning to thin out and we can see the light at, through the forest. It's we're We're coming out of it and I'm thankful that COVID-19 hasn't hit this area particularly hard. Um, That's thanks to sacrifices you and others have made. Um, We have survived a global pandemic. We outlasted loneliness and frustration and mental health fluctuations. And worst of all, our long lineups at Costco for toilet paper. We've survived all of that. Thank you for your patience, for your understanding. Keep being safe and keep caring for others around you. But here at Clyde Christian Bible Church, in the midst of all the chaos surrounding coronavirus there's been one constant presence and you might think i'm going to say jesus and you wouldn't be wrong obviously he is the most constant presence a shining light of hope and goodness and truth and power but there's another another constant presence another shining light of hope and goodness and truth and power and that's first and second samuel and also jesus of course but they kind of go together we've we started first samuel back in february it's carried us all through coronavirus um all through the COVID restrictions, and here we are finally, finally back in the building together. And we find ourselves at the halfway point of this fascinating Old Testament historical narrative. We are in chapter 16. There are 15 chapters before it and 15 chapters after it. We are right at the halfway mark. And since I'm certain that most people haven't followed along to all the previous 15 chapters and 17 sermons, quick scan to see who's avoiding eye contact, who's sweating. Yes, everyone is behind, and that's okay. Um, Sharon and Andrew are only two sermons behind, though, they told me. So. I'm not behind at all. That's why you're my favorite, Angeline. You and the sticker. Um, we've done 17 sermons and 15 chapters worth of content, 15 and a half, actually. So I thought instead of continuing in the story, I thought what I'd do today is do a quick summary of the story of 1 Samuel from chapter 1 which was our introduction to Hannah and Samuel, all the way up to chapter 16, which is our introduction to David, the future king. So we're going to do a catch-up today. And believe it or not, the entire story of 1 Samuel so far is all contained on this slide. This is the entire story of 1 Samuel. So we'll go through it chapter by chapter. Chapter 1. That is where we meet Hannah. Hannah is an oppressed outsider. She has been unable to bear children. Her husband has another wife, and she can have kids, and she mocks Hannah. Um, But Hannah, who is oppressed, who is a woman, who is the last person in Israelite society that God would listen to. Uh, She goes faithfully to the temple to pray, and of course, because because God loves all his children, 
he hears her. And she actually names her soon-to-be-born son Samuel, which means heard of God because God heard her. This son of hers, in response to her tremendous faith, will transform Israel. He will be Samuel, the one who will be the first prophet, the greatest priest uh, since Aaron, debatably, and the last of the, all the judges. So he kind of he is the mesh between one era of Old Testament history and a new era of, of Old Testament history, and it's all because of a mother's faith. Hannah is the first hero that we meet in the story of First Samuel. Then in chapter 2, we have Hannah's song. Hannah's song is monumentally important. In fact, it's the only piece of First Samuel that I'm going to actually read today. Um, it sets the stage for everything that will come. So if you want to turn to First Samuel chapter 2 and follow along, this is Hannah's song. It is beautiful, it is powerful, and there are themes that run all through First and Second Samuel that begin here. Hannah gives voice, our hero Hannah gives voice to everything we will learn after. It says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. Seven children, the number of completion. Remember, David is outside of the seven. But she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And that's Hannah's song. The theme of God raising the poor and the oppressed, um, but the unjust being laid low, that will dominate the lives of our heroes, as we'll see. And the rest of chapter 2 is the story of Hophni and Phinehas, the wicked sons of Eli, who was the high priest at the time. Samuel will replace Eli and his family. Um, Samuel will come from nothing, from nowhere, and be raised up by God, whereas Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, who are very entitled, who are very powerful, they will be laid low, they will be destroyed, um, their lives will be taken from them. So that's chapter 2, and it sets the stage for everything that follows. God raises the humble, and he brings down the proud. So our first picture is um, Hannah praying, the, the prayer hands. Second picture is song. The third key word is awake. Um, chapter 3 is, is one of the more famous stories in the books of 1 Samuel. That's where God speaks to a young Samuel. Uh, he's sleeping in the house of Eli, and here's a voice saying, Samuel, Samuel, and he gets up, he thinks it's Eli. It's not Eli, it's God calling to him. And I think this chapter was the last that we did in church before COVID hit, and Sharon, you were one of the voices, you and Dave, do you remember we acted this story out? 
that feels like it was five years ago. And that was the last one we did here in, in a church service. Um, the, key, the key statement in chapter 3 is Samuel saying, here I am. Which is a phrase that is echoed by many heroes in scripture. And it's, it's our call. It's the thing that we're supposed to say as well. Here I am. You do all the work. You do all the calling. You're, you are the one who makes me worthy. All I do is say, here I am. All I do is be willing and then I step out in faith to serve. And that's what Samuel does. Here I am. So prayer, song, awake. And by the way, when God speaks to Samuel, that's the first time in a long, long, long time that God spoke to his people Israel. So it's not just Samuel who is awake. God has awakened. Not that he was ever, you know, you know what I mean. God has awakened and is about to do a new powerful thing, primarily through Samuel. Chapter 4, uh, Israel, this is, so chapter 4, 5, and 6, that's the Ark narrative. Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? That was what kind of started our COVID time. There are three chapters that are, it's one story through each. And in chapter 4, the Philistines, who are just a constant thorn in Israel's flesh, they are going to war against the Israelites. And the Israelites, they think, well, hey, we need a little extra something special to boost us against the Philistines. So why don't we trump out the, or tramp out the Ark of the Covenant, which in the past has been led to great victory. But because their leadership is so corrupt and because the people do so in such a faithless way, God is not in that enterprise. They think that they have power and control over God, but they don't. Um, they are very unfaithful. And so God does not honor this this talisman, this, 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 this um, lucky charm, this Ark of the Covenant. And so the Philistines, they capture the Ark and take it back. And that, I've said this multiple times, that is the absolute lowest point in Israel's history since the Exodus, or since their enslavement in Egypt. That is their low point because the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence and now God's presence is no longer with them. In fact, God's presence is with the Philistines, their hated rivals, and they feel that all hope is lost. And so Hophni and Phinehas, they die in the battle. Eli, he falls off his chair and dies when he hears about it. So that's the end of Eli's house. And Eli's daughter-in-law, who is giving birth while this is all happening, dies in childbirth. But before she does, she names her son Ichabod. And that's the, our key word for chapter 4, Ichabod. No glory. Or where is the glory? The glory is gone. The glory has been taken from Israel, they have descended so far into unfaithfulness and idolatry and pride that God has taken the glory away. Ichabod means no glory. That's the name of the baby that's born. It means God's glory has gone away from Israel. And so everyone in Israel despairs. Chapter 5, the key word is hands for a few reasons. Surprise, even though God is... In the temple of Dagon, the Philistine, the heart of Philistine religion and culture and society, even though the Philistines assume they've got control of the mighty God, Yahweh, um, they don't have any control. God cannot be controlled, which is what the Israelites try to do, and now the Philistines try to do. And so to break out of his um, imprisonment in the temple of Dagon, God, what does God do? Who remembers? What's the thing that happens? He makes Dagon, their god, bow before him. And he actually breaks off his head and his hands. And that's why hands is the key word. Because hands, 
Throughout this whole chapter, I think the word hand is used five or six times, symbolizes power. The Philistines, like the Israelites, thought they had power over God, but God is not a God who can be controlled. He's a wild God, and he is a free God, a sovereign God. And so he breaks free from the Philistines, um, and he does that by breaking the hands of their idol. God's hand is very powerful. So prayer, that's Hannah's prayer. Song, that's Hannah's song. Awake, Samuel is awake, but so is God. Ichabod, there is no glory. The glory is departed. And now hands, God's powerful hand, he cannot be controlled. He is too powerful. And then chapter 6. I like chapter 6. And we connected it to the transfigure, no, not um, the uh, triumphant entry. In chapter 6, God, who is now free from the Philistines, he comes triumphantly marching back amongst his people on the back of a humble ox cart. And he comes back to his people The people are thrilled. Obviously, God's glory has returned to them. But just as a reminder that God is powerful and holy and cannot be controlled, anybody remembers what happens to these Israelites as they're celebrating? They look into the, they touch the ark and they look into it and they die. die. Yeah. So they celebrate, they're very happy. And just as a reminder that God is still holy and still cannot be controlled and will not be controlled, um, they. They are not respectful of his presence, and they they pay the price for it. But God is a humble God, even though he's so powerful, and he comes back to his people humbly, which is like Jesus uh, arriving in Jerusalem uh, for the triumphant entry. Prayer, song, awake, Ichabod, hands, chapter 6 is ox cart, which is a reminder that God is free to move as he will, but he does so humbly, even though he does so with great power. Chapter 7, our keyword is thunder. Chapter 7 is where Samuel displays that he is a judge, like in the book of Judges. Israel, after this whole thing with the Ark of the Covenant, they decide, hey, we need to repent. We've made some big mistakes, especially regarding idolatry, especially regarding pride. We need to humble ourselves and actually repent. Excuse me. And so all of Israel gathers before Samuel at, I think, Mizpah, and they repent of their idolatry. And as they're all gathered there in this great act ceremony of repentance, the Philistines come back and they, they see the, they're vulnerable and they start to attack. And so Samuel calls upon the name of God and Yahweh fends off the Israelite, or fends off the Philistines and he does so by sending thunder. And it's a reminder once again that when we are on God's side, he does the work for us. He, he is... He is the mighty one, and he will defeat our enemies for us. Our enemies are not people. Um, The New Testament is very clear about that. We do not have human enemies. And if you do have human enemies, we're supposed to love them even more than we love ourselves. Um, But our enemies are things like sin, death, anything that holds us back from being in in real relationship with, with Jesus. Those are our enemies, and God fights those fights for us. And so chapter 7 is thunder. Our key word for chapter 8 is king, because amazingly, despite this mighty deliverance God has just given them, the people are unsatisfied, they're dissatisfied with God being their king, which is how the whole system was supposed to be set up. And so they reject Israel, or they reject Yahweh as king, and they declare, we want a human king. And there's this really amazing interaction between Samuel and Yahweh, where Yahweh says, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. 
They're not satisfied with me as their king. They want a king like all the other nations, a king who will make them feel secure, a king who will make them feel powerful, a king who will legitimize themselves in the eyes of the world. But Samuel, he warns them of what this kingship will look like. Human kings are takers. They take and they take and they take. And Samuel says, he'll take your sons and daughters for the army. He'll take your land. He'll take your money. He will take your freedom. He'll take everything that you love and value and God has given to you. The human king will take all of it from you. And they say, we want a king. Um, Which is very much like the crowd saying, uh, we have no king but Caesar. Uh, Sorry, the crowds at Jesus' crucifixion saying, we have no king but Caesar. It's very much like that. It's the people rejecting the God who has just delivered them. Wanting something that the world has to, to offer without recognizing that what the world has to offer is always messed up, always broken and corrupt. So chapter 8 is a very sad chapter in Israel's history and, and a kind of a watershed chapter. So after chapter 8, which that the key word is king, after chapter 8, there's a funny little couple chapters of narrative and the key word for chapter 9 is donkey. Anybody know why it's donkey? Yeah, we meet, we meet a tall Benjamite named Saul. And the Benjamites, they're the smallest tribe in Israel. So he's, again, just like in the Song of Hannah, he is a nobody from nowhere and God raises him up. But he's, he's out looking for his donkeys and Samuel has been given a word from God that this is the guy who's going to be the first king of Israel. And so there's a, a couple of secret anointings that happen. The first one's in chapter 9. And this guy from nowhere with no credentials whatsoever, is anointed the first king of Israel. He's out looking for a donkey. He doesn't find his donkeys. He finds the kingship. Chapter 10, the key word is anointing because there's a a couple more secret ceremonies where Saul is anointed king of Israel. And at this point, Samuel and Saul are a partnership. Samuel is completely in control. And everything that God is very much in this whole process. God is the one who's telling Samuel to do all of this. God is blessing and rewarding Saul. And God's spirit actually fills Saul very much like the day of Pentecost in in Acts 2, where the spirit comes and fills them and they do amazing things. Saul starts prophesying, which everybody's like, hey, isn't this that Benjamite? What's he doing? And some people, some people, they say, look at this guy. What, What a fool. Those guys, we'll hear from them later. But chapter 10 begins with Saul, mighty, filled with the spirit, and chapter 10 ends with Samuel as uh, co- a coronation ceremony. And they're like, hey, where is Saul? And he's hiding in the luggage. He's hiding in the people's belongings. So yeah, God is powerfully with Saul. But right at the beginning, you, you start to see that this guy's not all there. there. There's something lacking in Saul. And you see it early. So that's chapter 9 and 10 is Saul is anointed this first king of, of Israel. For chapter 11, the key word is judge. And when I say judge, I don't mean like uh, a judge like today. I mean a judge like the Old Testament judges who were heroes who were raised up by God to defeat an enemy. And in chapter 11, Saul is that judge. And he's out plowing with his oxen again. He's He's still not very kingly. He's out in the field and he comes back and hears report that the Ammonites, they have said they're going to gouge out the eyes of some of the tribe of Israel and and shame them and subject them. 
And Saul says, no, that's not going to happen. And he's filled again with the Spirit of God, this righteous fury, and, and he calls all of Israel together, and they go and defeat the Ammonites. It's very much a miracle. What's amazing about chapter 11 isn't the defeat of the Ammonites to me. What's amazing about chapter 11 is how Saul is a Messiah figure, a messianic figure. He's, he's an image of the ultimate Messiah to come. Because Saul, filled with the Spirit of God, defeats the enemies. But the first thing he does upon defeat is he doesn't, he gives credit to God, first of all, he gives glory to God. But what's amazing is as king, as this mighty hero who's just won this victory, he has the opportunity to take vengeance on the people who were making fun of him before. The people who said, that's just Saul, he's nothing special. Um, in fact, all of Israel says to him, hey, do you want us to punish those guys who made fun of you? And Saul the king, the Messiah figure, says, no, I'm going to have mercy on my enemies. This is the Lord's celebration. It's a day to celebrate, not a day to take vengeance. Vengeance belongs to God. And I love that. It's such a beautiful portrait of the Messiah, the ultimate capital M Messiah to come. Wins a great victory, gives glory to God, and it's, it's in that victory there's built in mercy and grace. And I love that. So judge is the key word for chapter 11. So we've got prayer, song, awake, Ichabod, hands, ox cart, thunder, king, donkeys, anointing, and now judge. And keeping the courtroom theme, the, the key word for chapter 12 is testify. There's three different groups that are called to testify in chapter 12. I actually, chapter 12, for me, I was not familiar at all with chapter 12 before I taught it. And so far for me, this is the chapter that stuck, stuck out the most for me. Um, and it's a really unassuming chapter. It's kind of Samuel's last words to all of Israel. And three... Um, three different people are called to testify, called to speak. And the first is Samuel, and he is called to defend himself. He says, hey, have I ever taken any of this, taken any of that, taken, taken, taken? And all of Israel's like, no, you've been a wonderful leader. You, you're innocent. And Samuel says, okay, so I am vindicated. That's the first testify, er, testimony. The next is Samuel calls God to the stand, and God is, is put to the test. And Samuel says, look what God did for you in the Exodus especially and in the conquering of the Holy Land in all these times. Look at everything your God has done for you. Don't you think he's a good God to follow? And so when God is put on the stand, God is vindicated. And then Israel is put on the stand and Israel, they are not vindicated. They again repent for wanting a king. It doesn't change anything. They still have a king. And what's really amazing about chapter 12 is Saul is standing right there with Samuel the whole time. And Samuel just constantly kind of belittles Saul, necessarily so, to remind them that their real king is God. And so everything's different in chapter 12. They have a king. They have a new system, hierarchy, new, new political structure. Everything's different, but nothing is different. Nothing has changed. God is still king. Um, he still raises leaders, faithful leaders like Samuel, and he still delivers them as he had in their past. So everything's different moving forward, but nothing's different. Nothing has changed. He is still their God. They are still their people. They are still his people. Chapter 13, our keyword is excuses because this is chapter 13, 14, 15 is the downfall of Saul. And, and 
this is the best picture I could find for excuses. Just some guy saying, meh, don't, meh. Um, in chapter 13, they're again at war against the Philistines. Saul was made king. They wanted a king for one dominant purpose, and that was to get rid of the Philistine threat. And here's his chance. He's got instructions about how it's supposed to happen, but he's impatient for Samuel to arrive, and so he starts a sacrifice himself, which is an act he's not really supposed to do. Um, He's disobedient to God, and for that, um, God takes, he says he will take the kingdom away from him. It will not be Saul's line that will be promised for eternity as the, the kingly line of Israel. But the problem isn't the problem. The problem in chapter 13 isn't just his disobedience, because everybody disobeys. David will disobey. The problem in chapter 13 is Saul's response to the problem. Instead of repenting, as Israel had done, he makes excuses for himself. And that is the, the deadly sin for Saul. He never takes ownership of his mistakes. So that's the the big part of chapter 13, but it's couched in this battle that's coming against the Philistines. And remember, if you heard or read that chapter or listened to the sermon, what's the super ominous thing at the very end of the chapter about weapons? Anybody remember? The Philistines, they monopolize all the weaponry. Metal, Metal, yeah. The Philistines have all the metal workers, all the blacksmiths. And so Israel goes to war against a more powerful nation and they have no weapons. In fact, the the only two people who have swords are King Saul and his son Jonathan. And they go to war against the Philistines and God is not exactly with the king. So things look very grim and very bleak for Israel. So that's why the key word is excuses. Because Saul makes excuses for his sin and that's his downfall. But also there's all kinds of excuses for why Israel itself is terrified. And they are terrified. All the, the fighting men, they go and hide and flee and cower. They, they have all the excuses in the world. We can't possibly beat the Philistines. But that leads to chapter 14. And I love chapter 14. Chapter 14 is this lovely contrast about foolishness. Um, anybody know why there's a honeybee here? Andrew, why is there a honeybee? Yes, because Jonathan ate the honey. That's right. So there's two kinds of fools in chapter 14. The, this, chapter 14 begins with Jonathan, the Saul's son, the king's son. Foolishly, it's just him and his armor bearer, climb, they climb up a cliff to fight the Philistines, which is strategically insane. They are at low position. There's two of them fighting a whole uh, outpost of vastly superior military force. But Jonathan, it looks foolish, But he has a ridiculous faith, and his faith is profound, and he trusts that God will deliver the Philistines. And so uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they go and they defeat, like they kill like the first 10 Philistines. But this causes a panic amongst the rest of the Philistines, and they kind of stampede. They, They start fighting each other even. They're not sure what's going on, and that's often what God does. He creates chaos in the enemies. And so the Philistines, they start to flee, and King Saul, who's twiddling his thumbs under a bush, he sees the Philistines start to flee, so he says, "Uh, after them, go get them. And so they chase the Philistines, and it should be a complete wipeout of the Philistine army. That's what the whole story is setting up to. Thanks to Jonathan's foolish faith, foolish, foolish in a good way, a holy kind of foolishness, 
thanks to Jonathan's holy, foolish faith, the Philistines are served up on a platter to King Saul. And all he has to do is finish them off. But Saul makes another actually foolish vow that if anybody eats on this day, nobody will eat or drink anything until the Philistines are completely wiped out. And of course, the fighting men are famished and they lose their strength and their energy. And Jonathan, he doesn't know about this vow. He dips his staff into some honey and tastes it and is completely refreshed, which is the Bible's way of saying God was with him and is not with Saul because this foolish vow he makes backfires and they do not wipe out the Philistines. And the chapter ends with this really sad note that the Philistines were a constant threat for all of Saul's life. He was never able to do what what his people acclaimed him as king to do. So for us, there's this beautiful contrast between what's foolish to the world and what's foolish to God. And what's foolish to the world is often what is wisdom to God. Things like humility, things like service, things like sacrifice, that is foolishness in the eyes of the world. But if God is in it, then it's not foolish, it's wise. So foolishness is our key word for chapter 14. How, many, how much of this is completely fresh and new? Probably some of it. Hopefully it, it stokes your interest. You can always listen to them or I can, I can give you the sermon notes if you'd like. There's a lot more practical application, I think, in the sermons than what I'm doing now. For chapter 15, the word is sheep. God gives Saul very clear instructions when he goes out to battle the Ammonites. Is it the, I don't think, actually, I don't think it's the Ammonites. Amalekites, thank you. Yeah, this is wrong. Saul goes out to battle the Amalekites and is given distinct instructions that he, he's to wipe out everything and everyone. And he doesn't do that. He keeps the best of the sheep and the cattle and he spares the king to kind of parade him around as his own little trophy. Um, so he does not listen to God. And it's, Samuel gives this really powerful statement that God doesn't want your sacrifices. He doesn't care about your religious ritual. What he, want, what he wants is obedience. He wants your heart. He wants your faith. He doesn't care about you following ritual if your heart's not in it. Um, the heart's the more important part. And so Saul is not obedient, and so that's kind of the end of Saul. He remains king for a long time, but God is no longer with him. In fact, Samuel departs from Saul and never sees Saul again. He is condemned by his own sins, and he is rejected as king. And it's sheep because it's the bleating of the sheep. Um, Saul goes out to meet Samuel. And, and Saul says, hey, we've done it. We defeated the Amalekites. I did everything God told me to do. And Samuel's like, oh, you did? Then what is that bleating of sheep that I hear? And the, the mooing of cows. And Saul's like, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't get rid of everything. We kept some. And he makes excuses again. So the sheep is what condemns Saul. But the sheep is also the sacrifice. And it's a reminder that God doesn't want your ritualistic sacrifices if you don't have the sacrifice of a heart turned over to him. And finally, chapter 16, our last word is heart. In the part A of chapter 16, um, it's a really famous story where David is a nobody. He's the the eighth son. Remember in Hannah's song, it talked about seven sons. Seven is the number of completion and perfection. David is outside of seven. And he is the youngest, he has no birthright, and 
all of the action for Samuel takes place in the north of Israel. And David grows up way down in the south. So he is a complete outsider. He's from the middle of nowhere. Bethlehem at this point means nothing to anybody. It's just a, a sheep raising outpost in the middle of nowhere. And David, the youngest son, the eighth son, is raised up just like in Hannah's song as, as king over, or he will become king over Israel. Not because of his status, not because of his birthplace, not because of anything other than one simple character trait and that he had a heart for God. He's a total outsider who is anointed king because of his heart for God. So that's the entire story of 1 Samuel. Prayer, song, awake, Ichabod, hands, ox cart, king, or sorry, thunder, king, donkey, anointing, judge, testify, excuses, foolishness, sheep, and heart. And in those key words, if you can memorize that, you've got all of 1 Samuel 1 to 16 done. We began with an unexpected outsider, Hannah, being rewarded for her heart for God. And here at the halfway mark, her son, Samuel, presides over the choice of another unexpected outsider who will be rewarded for his heart for God. Hannah had a heart for God and is rewarded. David has a heart for God and will be rewarded. And neither Hannah nor David are anyone special in the eyes of the world. It is foolishness for God to have anything to do with these people. But God honors holy foolishness. Hannah's song has rung true. And just to close out, I want to look at Hannah's song real quick. Um, the highlighted parts especially. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth, mouth speech... <laughs> Do not... I'm talking foolishly. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. That's, that's the, all the enemies of God that we've seen. That's Eli's family. They are proud and arrogant. That's Israel and the Ark narrative. They think that God's on their side and he's not because they have no faith. That's Israel demanding a king. That is an arrogant and proud demand. That is Saul's disobedience and his unwillingness to repent. Everything that goes wrong in the book of Samuel can be attributed to what Hannah says here. Pride and arrogance and foolishness. Later in the psalm, it says, It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. That's true of the wicked priests that are overtaken by Saul, Samuel. They, um, they twist and pervert justice. It's true of the Philistines and Ammonites. They rely on their own strength and are defeated at various times, and the Amalekites as well. And that is Israel repeatedly. They rely on their own strength, and Saul does the same thing. He relies on his own strength. And anytime Israel or Saul or the priests or the nations around them, anytime they rely on their own strength, anytime we rely on our own strength, we're setting ourselves up for failure. We do not trust in ourselves because ourselves are weak and fallible. Instead, we trust in the one who sends the thunder. Thunder was literally the instrument God used in chapter 7, as Hannah says here, after Israel committed to not leaning on their own strength anymore or leaning on the strength of idols, but they committed to, to entrusting themselves to the strong hands of God. But for me, the key, key, key part of Hannah's song is this middle one I've got highlighted here. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. 
Anybody who's done anything heroic in 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 16, anything who'll do anything heroic from chapter 16 all through the end of 2 Samuel, any hero that we have, not just in these books, but in all of Scripture, this is true. They are only heroes because God has lifted them up. God has empowered them. This is the story of Hannah, who was uh, a woman with no children, that's two big strikes against her, uh, in a society that was already incredibly misogynistic. She should not be a hero, but God sees her faith. God knows her heart. So it doesn't matter what the world thinks. She's a hero, and God honors her heroic faith. This is true of Samuel, who is, again, just a little boy who God calls in the middle of the night, and he is willing. He says, here I am. And it's through Samuel that there's this huge sea change from, from the judges and God is king to human kings, but God is the judge. Um, this is true of early Saul, who was just a nobody from the smallest tribe in Israel. His only credentials were that he was tall and handsome. And God raises him out from, from nothing and makes him a powerful king. And at first he is powerful and he is obedient. And this is now true, and we'll see this throughout his life. This is ultimately true of David. Everything about this narrative is leading towards David. It's building to David. And here at the halfway point of the first book of Samuel, we meet him. Um, we'll talk more about David for the coming weeks, but his story is he's a, a little boy from nowhere, um, outside of the number of completion. He's the eighth son who God raises up, anoints, only because David has a heart for God. If you have a heart for God, God will raise you up. You will be exalted. If you have a heart only for yourself, if you are proud and arrogant, and if you are unjust and you treat others around you unfairly, God will cut you down. That is the story of 1 Samuel so far. It's also continuing from David to down the line of David to Jesus. That's the story of Jesus as well, who is humble and powerful. And that's the story of Clyde Christian Bible Church. We are a bunch of nothing special people from nowhere special. We are just regular people, regular farmers like David, like um, Saul. We are nothing special, but we are everything special because our faith fills us with the power of God, the spirit of God. We can do amazing things even though we're nothing special because God is with us. That's what makes you special. That's what makes it such a privilege to love and serve with you guys. So that's the first half of 1 Samuel in, uh, what is it, 16 pictures. Hopefully that jogs your memory a little bit, and if, if it's all new, then you got kind of, um, kind of an overview that prepares us for the next few chapters. Next week we will look at, there's three introductions we get to King David. The first is he's the littlest son out tending the sheep, and God anoints him. The second is... How does he end up in the court of King Saul? That's what we'll look at next week. And the third introduction to David is the most famous story in, maybe the most famous story in the Old Testament, and that's David and Goliath. So that's what we have to look forward to. Also, when we get to David and Goliath, what I'm hoping to do is, so it's not just me up here all the time, I'm hoping to have people share their stories of Goliaths that they have faced. So Angeline and David, 
they're two people I've already approached and they've said that they would speak to Goliaths that they have faced in their lives. Um, I'm hoping for a few more. So if that's something that you think you could speak on, just a personal testimony, it doesn't have to be long, um, like 15 minutes or whatever. If that's something you think you might be able to do, I would love to have a lot of different voices share about Goliaths that they have faced. So consider it, and I'll be asking more specifically in the coming weeks, but that's something you can look forward to, people's stories, and I'm, I'm looking forward, forward to that very much. Okay, that was a whole lot longer than I thought it would be. I originally, I, I thought it was just going to be the, the little blurbs, but you know me. Um, let's pray. God, you are good, and we're thankful for your goodness. And we read these stories, and there's lots of confusing and confounding parts of them. They're very complicated at times. It's hard to see ourselves in these stories sometimes, but when we have your eyes, we see ourselves all over these stories. We know that we are um, nobody special, that we're from nowhere, we have no credentials, but you fill us with your love and your power, and that we are special to you, Father. And you make us able to do special things through your Holy Spirit when we trust in you, when we have faith in you, and when we allow ourselves to be empowered by you. I thank you for these stories. I thank you for heroes like Hannah and Samuel and early Saul and David. And they inspire us. They, they, make us, they fill us with a desire to serve you well. We thank you also for the warnings that we have from people like the Philistines or arrogant Israel or disobedient Saul and these warnings we see ourselves in those as well but in all these stories I pray that they will lead us to you father and that you would be glorified and pray all these things in your name amen all right we are the people we are the ones who are raised up by God's hand and these stories are beautiful confirmations of that so if you want homework, then maybe read the first 16 chapters of 1 Samuel again or on your own to prepare us as we move forward. Okay, well, uh, have a safe and, and meaningful week and good to see you guys again. Love you and we missed you. And, uh, we it is not by strength that one prevails. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. And in those key words, if you can memorize that, you've got all of 1 Samuel 1 to 16 done. Wow. I guess I've got to get dressed for church again now. <laughs> you win the sticker.